0: Hello and welcome to the show. Susan Cain's groundbreaking book, Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking, sold over two million copies worldwide and brought her acclaim as one of the world's most influential thinkers. Now she's back with Bittersweet, a new book exploring the nature of melancholy in a culture that seems blind to its value. It's out now. She joined us in conversation with Hannah McInnes.
1: There is so much to ask you. There's there's so much in this book and, and, you know, an hour is not long enough, but I think the very first thing to do is to do what you do in the introduction and define bittersweet. I think before we go anywhere, we need to hear from you what bittersweet
2: means. I think that is a great place to start. And that's because we tend to think of bittersweetness as being a kind of fleeting moment that happens. You know, I don't know, you tear up at a TV commercial. Oh, that was a bittersweet moment in time, which is true, but there's also a kind of propensity to inhabit these bittersweet states because what lies underneath it is the recognition that joy and sorrow and light and dark in this world are forever twins. They they are paired and that everybody we love best and everything we love most will is at some point it is impermanent. They will some at some point disappear, but that what comes with the deep and visceral recognition of these truths is a kind of piercing joy at the beauty of the world and a kind of access to states of creativity and connection and transcendence.
1: I want to Come individually to all of those things—to to sorrow, longing, to creativity. But I think a good place to sort of continue before we get there is why you wrote this book and spent so long researching it, put a great deal into it. And there, there are a few reasons that you stated at the start, and they wind their way and interweave their way throughout all of the sections of the book. But perhaps you were prompted really at the very beginning by your reaction to sad music. You say, I started writing this book to solve the mystery of why so many of us respond so intensely to sad music. On the face of it, it seemed a small subject for a years long project, but I couldn't let it go.
2: Yeah, that's right. So this really did begin with me just trying to answer that relatively narrow question because I just had so many moments throughout my life and they would happen reliably and they still do, you know, I like turn on the sad music and, and instantly I've got this whole constellation of reactions that have to do with a kind of, I mean, yes, sorrow, but more deeply, like a kind of sense of uplift, um, a feeling of connection to all the other beings who have experienced the sorrow that the music is straining to express and a sense of gratitude to the musician for being able to transform what clearly began in pain into something beautiful and even transcendent. So it's basically like, it's like love distilled um, in this music. And I, I couldn't understand how that reaction could, could take place in reaction to something that was so manifestly sad. Like, why did it give rise to these feelings that weren't quite happiness? Exactly. They were like beyond happiness. And, you know, I I started researching and like the first points in my trail, uh, I found that many people besides me feel this way, um, you know, that people who love bittersweet music play the sad, play, play their, their favorite songs, which are sad. They play them 800 times on their playlist. Whereas people who prefer happy music play them like 175 times. So like the people who love bittersweet music, they really, they really love it. It's really doing something for them. And they'll tell researchers that it's connected for them to states of the sublime, you know, of like wonder and awe and transcendence. So that was, that was kind of what I learned about sad music, but I quickly realized that sad music was only one manifestation of this much deeper aspect of the human experience that, should I tell you, should I talk about that?
1: Yeah, good, good. I'm nodding so so perhaps I should interject to say what what we were talking about before in fact we came live. I'm nodding so profoundly, I'm sure many people are, because that experience that you describe, and you know it's why I found it sort of relatively uncanny reading the book is just so incredibly relatable to me. But when I told someone this earlier, I thought you know, I've read this description of how I feel precisely when I hear kind of bittersweet music. Um, and the, they turned around and said, don't be ridiculous. You know, you're the a very cheerful, mm-hmm. um, positive, happy person. Mm-hmm. But perhaps you can explain exactly. It's a wide spectrum. You don't have to be one or the other. And in fact, they are inextricably linked.
2: Yeah, no, that's true. And in fact, um, if I had had my way, I probably actually would have called this book, The Happiness of Melancholy, because... I have always experienced this as a kind of happy state of being, but a really important one. Um, And then people told me, no, you'll never sell a single copy if you use that (laughs) title. So I didn't go in that direction, but it does kind of answer what your friends have been saying to you about how can you be as positive as you are and still relate to this. But I mean, I guess one way of digging a layer deeper into it comes from a, a letter that I got from a filmmaker in Los Angeles who read the book and felt that it was describing his internal experiences. And he, he described, he'd grown up in New York city and he talked about how he used to go home late at night from parties. He would walk home across the, the length of the city and listen to this kind of music. And he said he would be overcome by what he called to himself, quote, that holy feeling. And he wasn't a religious person, but it, it was that holy feeling. And I think what he was really getting at is something that's broader and deeper than music itself, um, which is that all humans come into this world with a sense of longing and reaching towards a more perfect and beautiful world than the one in which they find themselves. And we manifest this in so many different ways. So our religions have long manifested this through the longing for Eden and Zion and Mecca and Harry Potter manifests it by having this protagonist who enters the story at precisely the moment that he's been orphaned and he's gonna now spend the rest of of the story in the books longing for his parents and acting out these adventures that are inextricably attached to this longing. And you have Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz is longing for somewhere over the rainbow, Odysseus in in Homer's Odyssey, we think of that as a tale of epic adventure, but but the adventure actually begins with Odysseus weeping on a beach because he's longing for home, uh, for Ithaca. So, the the heart of the human experience is this sense that you could call spiritual longing. Whether we're atheists or believers, it makes no difference. But it's this longing that um, impels us to, like, to have our adventures and to create our. our and, and to act creatively, you know, and, and to reach in general, to reach forward. And that's, that's really what the music, I realized after all this, all, all these years of being immersed in this, that's really what the music is for those of us who love it so much, that kind of music, that's what it's telling us.
1: As, uh, two two main things I want to sort of ask you about the longing. First of all, you said it doesn't matter if we're, if it's religious or not, but you do say that this book and your sort of journey and understanding of Bittersweet is also an account of your passage from agnosticism to something else. Well, so how did faith tie into this? Because you say it's not faith, you didn't find faith, but what did you find?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's been a curious thing because, yeah, I started off as a deep agnostic and I remain deeply agnostic. And yet, I think what's the the passage for me, what it's been is that there, whatever we choose to call it, you know, that there are these kinds of moments of sacredness or, um, you know, the miraculous that are all around us everywhere. And for me, you know, music kind of reached out and spoke to me about that truth. For other people, it might not be music, it might be nature, or it might be like, um, you know, Glorious moments on, on a soccer pitch. Uh, I, I, my husband and my two sons are incredibly oriented towards sports and athletics. And, and for them, I see them have these moments of kind of sublime transcendence within that realm. So it's different for everybody. When I say it doesn't matter if you're an atheist or a believer, like that's my particular conclusion, which I say because C.S. Lewis spent his whole life also consumed by this question of what he called the inconsolable longing for we know not what and in his case he ended up concluding that if we have this kind of longing for another world which which can't be satisfied in this world then it must be because we belong to another more godly world that that was his conclusion i reach a different conclusion you know, to me, it, what C.S. Lewis said is that the, the books and the music in which we first saw the longing were not the real thing. I reached the opposite conclusion. I, I think they are the real thing. I think that they're all just different manifestations of the same place that we're all longing for. I, I guess I invite each reader to come to their own conclusion.
1: If longing is a state that we want to be in, what happens in the getting, in the achievings? If if the ideal state is one of longing, how do you stay in that forever? Because you'd never then, you know, what happens when you get the thing you long for? Does it then take away from the experience and the feeling?
2: No, I don't think it does. And I think as humans, we're always in that state in one form or another, you know, and we might feel at a, moment in time, like we've reached some kind of way station. And I think there are periods of time where we feel this kind of existential longing in more intense ways and sometimes less intensely. But I would say as hum- it, just the way all our myths and our stories tell us that we're always on some kind of journey, because I would say that journey that we're all on all the time is a journey of longing. Like the, the word longing, its etymology literally means to grow longer and to reach for so, we're always reaching for something. On the flip side of the question you just asked, people, um, I, I think there is a feeling of like, well, if I lean into this state of longing, I might never come out and I might become mired in it or wallowing in it. And I do think that all these questions that we're talking about right now are a kind of delicate balancing act, you know, and there's a way in which you can go too deeply into the state of longing and and the sorrows of the world and all of that and and it can be too much and you want to be pulled back into the realm of joy you know because these two things really go together so I think it's a question of figuring out the right degree at any one time
1: i would say that the third reason for writing the book for you was your own personal processing of some sort of deep emotions and you say writing this book was yet another act of transforming the sorrow and longing of the past into the wholeness of the present and that's to do with trying to process for you a very complex and complicated relationship with your own mother. How does that narrative fit into this idea of bittersweet and how the sorrow and the longing and the relationship makes you whole, how you found that wholeness in that very personal situation of yours?
2: Well, gosh, it's hard to answer the question in this format only because it's such a long and deep story that I tell through the book. But I guess just to give like a super overview, you know, I'd had an incredibly close relationship with my mother growing up. I look back on my childhood as a kind of garden of Eden and then, as often happens for people, um, during the time of adolescence, my mother and I had a, a great big split. I think ours was much more explosive and longer lasting than for many people, but that happened and, it, and, and that split lingered on for decades and it caused in me a kind of... Uh, you know, a grief that I kind of carried around with me throughout the decades as my life kind of moved forward and was quite happy in so many ways. I was still carrying around this grief. And I came to understand that that grief was a, not the same thing as, but let's say again, like a manifestation of the pain of separation that all humans feel through something. You know, there's for some, it's the separation from the divine, but there's always, there's a bereavement, there's a breakup, there's a something. And this this feeling of the pain of separation and the longing for reunion is at the heart of human experience. In the case of my mother, I was able to have a kind of redemption in a way because in her older years, like right now, she she has Alzheimer's, but she... In her Alzheimer's, she still remember. She, she's forgotten all the troubles that we went through. You know, like decades of troubles. She's forgotten about, and what she remembers is the love of our relationship. So, during all my adult years, I had been asking myself, you know, maybe my memory of my childhood is wrong. Like maybe it wasn't as Edenic as the way I I think of it. You know, maybe that that was just the um, misunderstanding of a child. But when I, when I am with my mother now, it's like the mother of my childhood has returned to me. And I realized that we really were like that, you know, and that the loving relationship that we had back then has returned to us. So it's been just an amazing thing. But what I also learned along the way, even before this happened with, with my mother's Alzheimer's is that the love that we lose along the way, the pain of separation, you know, that, that love can return to us in many different forms. So, you know, you. You might be feeling keenly the pain of separation from, from a particular place or from a particular person, but there's a way in which love itself exists above and beyond those particularities, and that we can learn to access again, whether the particularity, or the particular person, ever returns to us or not.
1: And that this idea of um, loss, because you you know your mother doesn't. You don't lose her sort of physically. She doesn't die um, in in what you're writing about, but you feel like you've lost her. It it leads you to have your process, your own thoughts on loss, and you talk to so many other people about loss and death and how central they are. You you say this intense awareness of passing time, uh, the fleeting nature of life, that's the hallmark of bittersweetness itself.
2: Yeah, and... um... And to recognize, as you say, that that does come in so many different forms. So, we're very, we're intensely aware that when it comes to what you could call straight up bereavement, you know, the the death of a loved one, we're like, okay, I know that's loss, that's impermanence, but it happens in in a thousand different ways. And psychologists actually call this disenfranchised griefs, which are you know the many kinds of griefs that come to us that we don't feel we have permission to mourn um, as, as true bereavements, if we even think to express it to ourselves that way, like I I look back now and I realize, with my relationship with my mother, that I was going through a kind of prolonged mourning, but it never would have occurred to me to think of it in those terms. Like that would have felt incredibly self-indulgent. And then that makes it hard for us to actually process the truth of, of experience. And what I would say, like, to the point about self-indulgence, which is, I think a, a real and valid fear but what we know, and I I talk about all kinds of studies in this book, what we know is that the intense awareness of life's fragility actually predisposes us to states that you could call wisdom, like states where we're focused more on meaning than on fleeting pleasures. We're more attuned to gratitude. We're less prone to fleeting annoyances and anger with others. Um, And you see this in so many different ways. Yeah. So there's a way in in which this attunement to life's bittersweetness, instead of being a self-indulgence, it's actually a path to wisdom.
1: Yes. I mean, all the way through bittersweet. um, And, you know, I think we've, we've established that bittersweet is, is a, a desirous way of being and a way of being in the world. And, If you um, are therefore kind of hoping to attain that sense and one of the most sure found ways of getting there is to be close to death. You know, we don't want to have to get there in order to feel bittersweet and in order to appreciate life in that intense way. Mm -hmm. But you describe ways in which uh, we can we can get there anyway without being physically Kind of um, close to death, whether through age or whether through illness or whether through losing a loved one, those things aren't necessary in order to get to that bittersweet state of mind.
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I I spoke to Laura Karstensen, who's a psychologist at, at Stanford, who's done a lot of research into this, this this find. She she's actually the one who found that that the intense awareness of life's fragility gets us to these wisdom states, and and she located it first in Older people who just by virtue of the fact that they only have a few years left to live um, are automatically thrust into that awareness. Um, but we talked about well, what are other ways to get to that state if if you're not yet eighty? And it was funny. The first thing she mentioned was actually listening to uh, to yearning minor key music. So I thought, okay, I, that that makes total sense to me. But you know, other ways to get there. In some ways, we could look straight at the bittersweet quiz that I co-developed with the psychologists, Scott Barry Kaufman and, and David Yadin, which asks you a bunch of questions that are designed to like figure out how prone you are to this bittersweet state of mind. Um, and they, they include things like, drawing info- do you draw comfort or inspiration from a rainy day? Do you tear up when you see a touching TV commercial? Um, have other people called you an old soul? So it's it's kind of inhabiting states like this that get us into that appreciation and that awareness.
0: Hello, it's Vass here. One of our all-time favorite guests at How to Academy is back. Yuval Noah Harari's next book tells the story of how information networks have made and unmade our world. Nexus, a brief history of information networks from the Stone Age to AI, is out in September and available to pre-order now.
1: Do do you think what you're saying in this book is going against a sort of perceived wisdom that those things, you know, tearing up easily being uh, are actually the kind of traits or or negative states that you would associate with weakness and, and, you know, yes, I suppose fragility that isn't an optimal way of moving through the world, kind of one of strength?
2: Absolutely. So one of the things we found is that people who score high in the bittersweet quiz also score high on the psychologist Elaine Aron's measure of being a highly sensitive person, which basically means somebody who kind of reacts super intensely to everything. You know, like the, the beauty of a sunset, and also the the noxious sound of a construction site. You know, you're going to react more to all of that. And in our culture, sensitivity is not I say our in you know, a kind of royal we of national cultures. In our culture, that kind of sensitivity is often mistakenly seen as a weakness. And I say mistakenly because what we also found with the Bittersweet Quiz is that people who score high on it also score high on states that predispose them to creativity. And they score high on measures of awe and wonder and transcendence and spirituality. I guess what I'd say is it's different kinds of strengths. And if there's one through line I've found through all the different work I've been doing for these last decades with Quiet and, and now with Bittersweet, the one through line is the idea that just as in in fairy tales and in mythology, we know that there are all different kinds of superpowers. You know, there's like, there's the lightsaber, there's the wizard's wand, there's magical powers of ESP, whatever there is, we all have different superpowers. And so the question is not to say this superpower is good and that one is bad, which is the way our culture tends to go. It's more just to shine a light on the different ones on offer and to recognize those that have been granted to us personally.
1: You've mentioned creativity quite a lot, and it's obviously something that, you know, it's not a new idea that, uh, Creativity um, comes from this place of, of melancholia and, and from this sort of acute sensitivity to the world. And many artists are known to have that frame of mind. Before we move into discussing a little bit, tell us why it's very much linked this whole book is in memory of Leonard Cohen
2: mm-hmm. yeah 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 the, the book is in memory of him because i he's been my kind of patron saint all my life and and it was with his music that i really discovered everything we've just been talking about um and also the epigraph that i chose for the book comes from his song anthem which um which which goes uh, there's a crack in everything that's where the light gets in, which has kind of become my life philosophy. But in terms of creativity, yeah, I mean, people have been talking about this for 2000 years. You know, Aristotle was asking the question 2000 years ago of why is it that so many of the great poets and philosophers and politicians of his day, why do so many of them have melancholic personalities? He asked that question. And so it's not, as you say, a new observation. And yet, when you look at mainstream psychology, you can't—if if you type the word "melancholy" into the PubMed database, you know, like the the database of clinical journals, basically there you won't find anything like what Aristotle was asking. You're going to find a lot of articles about clinical depression. Um, so there's no understanding at the moment of there being a distinction between this state that you could call a kind of happy productive melancholy versus the state of true depression which we would wish on no one you know and it and is not helpful to creativity at all it's it's a kind of emotional black hole where you feel numb and and not able to be creative so it's somewhere in that uh, distinction between those two states that the the pearl lies
1: it's so interesting that, do you think there's any recognition in modern psychology of that really crucial difference between those two things?
2: It's starting to happen now. That's the great news. So, you know, over the last, however many years it's been, let's say over the, over the last few decades, we've had the advent of positive psychology, which was a much needed antidote to traditional psychology. You know, positive psychology basically said we as psychologists have been focusing too much on, on mental illness, like on what goes wrong for people. We haven't focused enough on what makes things go well and what makes someone flourish. So let's do that. So that was great. But what ended up happening, of course, was we ended up focusing so much on you know optimism and the states of being upbeat and cheery and, and all these things that go along with the word positive. What's happening now though, is there people in the field of, of positive psychology who are calling for positive psychology 2.0 that gets in more to the full range of human experience, you know, the joy and the sorrow, the light and the dark, and sees the key to human flourishing as being located in that full range of human experience. So we're getting there now. Um, there are people like, like Scott Barry Kaufman and uh, Tim Lomas and Dr. Paul Wong who are starting to talk about this. And I think the field is really going to transform over the next 10 years.
1: We should move still all very much into late, but into the second part of the book, which is sort of what we're talking about now and, you know, society catching up with these ideas, Mm -hmm. because your second part of the book is called winners and losers. How can we live and work authentically in what you call a tyranny of positivity? Mm -hmm. Could you explain what you mean when you describe a tyranny of positivity and why you think that governs the society we live in or whether it's just you know i'm talking in the uk is it specific to where you are in the state
2: <laughs> it's funny before we started i i don't think it is specific to the us I, I think it's very much in the uk as well i think it probably manifests differently in the uk i think there's more of a feeling in the uk that you um you know, kind of like the idea of the stiff upper lip and all the yeah. social manifestations of that. I'm going
1: to say, so I'm so sorry to interrupt. It not makes, at all. It struck me all the way through the tyranny of positivity, which you describe as a sort of a false smile and a permanent sort of fixed grin in the States is very similar to a British um, stiff upper lip, keep calm and carry on mentality. Yes,
2: yes, exactly. That that I, I think that's very true. Um the thing that unites them is the need not to dwell too much on the loss side of human experience. So, like in the book, I tell the story of of my great friend Susan David, the psychologist, um who actually grew up in South Africa. and she she's a very cheerful, upbeat person, just by nature. That's her personality. She lost her father to cancer when she was a teenager. And she tells the story of how she felt so much, she had like internalized so much social pressure to always put on the cheerful face that, um, on the day he died, her mother called her in to his sick room to say goodbye to him, which she did. And then she went off to school and she went to geometry and history and all her different classes and kind of kept on carrying on. And she did that for the whole rest of the year. Um, and didn't even really admit her grief so much to herself. It, it came out for her in that she developed bulimia and started you know, vomiting up her lunch in private. And she says that she would have kept on going on that way, except that she had an English literature teacher who one day passed out to the class blank notebooks. and And, and she fixed her eyes on Susan in particular. And this teacher had lost a parent also as a young person. And so she fixed her eyes on Susan and said, just write whatever you're feeling. It's up to you. Just write it all. And and so the young Susan David wrote, wrote down the truth for the first time of what she was feeling. And she calls that a revolution in a notebook. And I think that's a kind of revolution that we're probably in the process of going through right now. I think it is just beginning, but I think we we need some more of it, as well. And again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not calling for us all, you know, starting to wallow. Or um, I actually do. I, I've had the experience many times. Like when I used to work in an office as a lawyer, I had the experience many times of, you know, you might be having some personal problem, and you show up at, at work, and you don't want to talk about it. You put on your face, and, and you actually feel better as a result. So I think there's a lot of truth to that side of things too. I just think that we need more balance.
1: Do you think um, in many ways it's um, a generational thing? Because I recognise that in a generation, an older generation who've been brought up and, and perhaps that's a UK thing, but very much brought up not to, to be vulnerable, not to talk about their problems, not to open up and to, and to share and to basically be the way you would advocate, you know, we try more of to sort of be authentic.
2: Partly generational, but from the younger people who I've spoken with, I I think that there's a real push and pull among younger generations too. I I I interviewed students at my own alma mater. I went back 30 years later to interview them, and um, and so these were students who at the time were I don't know late teens, early twenties, at most, and um, this was just a few years ago, and. I started just asking them general questions and we were literally like about two minutes into the conversation before they started telling me about this phenomenon that they call effortless perfection. Mm -hmm. And this is the, the, the social pressure that they said they feel to be perfect at everything, you know, to be thin and attractive and to get great grades and to get a great career ultimately, and to be social and to do all of this. But also to make it appear effortless. And I think that's the manifestation that this takes for them, you know, and and they were describing how, like one of them was telling me he was in a terrible fight with his father and it was really upsetting, but he would never let that show except to his closest friends. Um, You know, you have to put on the right face all the time. So yeah, I think there's simultaneously more permission opening up and especially with younger generations, but but then there's hundreds of years of legacy that are um, still counteracting that.
1: That idea of, of, of complete what, what is it called again? Perfection.
2: Oh, um, effort, effortless perfection. Yeah.
1: Is is would you say almost the antithesis then of embracing the bittersweet?
2: Yes, it is because I, I trace in the book like where where it all comes from, and it basically comes from this dichotomy that we have developed between winners and losers. And, and basically what happened, um, what I'm about to say is history of the US. I'm, I suspect there was something like this in the UK, but I'll tell you about it. You can see how much you think it resonates. Basically in the US, as, as we became a more mercantile culture in the 19th century, the question of who succeeded and who failed at business became very preoccupying. And the question arose as to if someone succeeded or failed was that because of good or bad luck or was it because of something inside them and increasingly the answer became it was something inside them you know that some some predisposition to success or failure and the more you start answering the question in that way the more you feel you need to do everything to showcase that you're one of the winners and you're not one of the losers and so that means if the worst thing that you can possibly be is a loser, and, and you can see in Google Ngrams, you know, the use of this word loser just like increasing over time, if the worst thing you can be is a loser, then then of course you want to avoid bittersweetness. You want to avoid the the truth or the reality that joy and sorrow go together because you don't want to embrace or admit to anything that has to do with the sorrow or loss side of the ledger. That there's a kind of social death in doing that.
1: When I hear you speak and when I when I read the book, all of what you're saying does make me feel that there is a certain move, particularly now, into a culture of understanding that um showing us with our vulnerabilities, embracing the, the highs and the lows, sharing those things is much more permeating the culture, thankfully, than it than it has. You know, I think that embracing failure. Um, and embracing sorrow and loss and how we can learn from it rather than push it away. We are starting to get there.
2: I agree. I I, I do believe we're starting to get there. And and I also want to say, you know, just to sort of um, balance out everything I've just been saying, I'm a pretty private person, despite my, um, despite my career sort of pushing me to divulge this thing and that thing. So I understand very well. I mean, I wrote a whole book about introverts. I understand very well the feeling of like, well, I don't want to have to show up at my workplace and start telling everything, everybody everything that I'm feeling or, or experiencing. So I do think we need to be careful to make this a sort of natural and not obligatory state of social interaction for it to, to get to the point where it's no big deal. It's no longer socially fraught to be able to talk about this aspect of ourselves, but neither is it compulsory
1: at the moment it's too sort of forced or, con- or kind of constrained. Um, it's not a natural a natural thing, but perhaps we are getting there. And, yeah. and be- um, just before I invite um, and open this up to audience questions, the way you end the book is uh, also incredibly intriguing and I'm sure will fascinate many people because it's all very well to figure out how to process trauma, sorrow, longing, loss that we understand in our own lives. But what you then talk about, which is something we've actually spoken about the How To Academy before because we recently interviewed um, Julia Cameron. I don't know if you know, she's written Mm -hmm. about trauma through families and very much this point that you make that through, you know, a lot of trauma is passed on. Mm. Can that ever be resolved? You know, how, how do you work your way through trauma that's been passed to you from other generations? It's something you try and figure out in the book.
2: Yeah. And I talk a lot in the book about, yeah, about inherited grief and the ways in which we can inherit that kind of trauma, not only through the cultures of our families, but, but literally epigenetically, you know, through, through certain genes being switched on or off, um, especially in response to genes that react to stress and this kind of thing. And there are a lot of different ways of coming to terms with that kind of an emotional inheritance, and maybe it's too much here to talk about all the different ways, but but let's say a fundamental outlook shift that I know I know I really went through through writing this book is the idea that you can you can look back to your parents and to your ancestor ancestors and to what they've gone through, and you can find a way to simultaneously love them and honor them, but to deeply recognize that their stories are not your stories. Um, and that you can do both those things at the same time. You can love them without making their stories yours. And I've actually found it's not just through writing, but it's through being a mother has actually really helped me to understand this. Because when we look forward to the forward generations, to our children's generations, we know that we want to hand them as great a legacy as we can. Um, but we also know we we also want to grant them the independence to fully inhabit their own stories and not be taking our stories with them. And I think once you see that going forward, it makes it easier to enact the same thing when looking back.
1: Can I ask you one more thing that I'm grappling with reading this is that what what you uh, and the people that you've talked to and interviewed generally are encouraging through the book is an ability to look at the impermanence of life, to, to look at death, to look at things like that. And instead of to feel fear and anxiety Um, and nervousness, which I think is something that, you know, most of us feel when we think of death. When we think of losing anyone we love, um, we just feel sick with fear. Mm -hmm. But I wonder what you learned about how we can turn that, I would say it's a sort of really physical sickness and a, a sense of sort of sweaty unease into something more beautiful because that's what you're ultimately trying to, to to take us through, how to turn that pain and fear into something more beautiful, more creative, and more um, useful to us.
2: I, I love it that you talked about the physical reactions, because I mean, I, I lost my father and my brother to COVID over the last couple of years. And in both cases, I, I spent days afterwards just physically feeling nauseous which wasn't exactly the feeling i had predicted but that's what it was and so i don't mean to sugarcoat the the rawness and the finality of grief and of loss they they are all those things there is a sense in which the fact that we all are going to experience this at some time or another you know that we're all in this together there's something about that that is incredibly Sustaining, you know, in, in in the book I write about the Buddhist poet, Japanese Buddhist poet Issa. I don't know how to pronounce his name, but it's Issa. He lived two hundred years ago. He had wanted all his life to have children, had them late in life, and his, his children kept dying, like miscarriages and so on. And th- and then finally, he had a little girl who he adored, and then she too died of smallpox at like the age of two or three. And after this, he wrote this famous poem where he's basically saying in the poem, and remember he's, he's Buddhist. So he's basically saying, I understand that this world of dew, D E W, this world of dew is a world of dew. You know, he's basically saying, I understand the dew is going to evaporate. Everything's impermanent. I understand that. And then he says, but even so, and he's basically saying, you know, (laughs) no matter how much we get this idea of impermanence but even so it's always going to be a terrible pain. There's something about the fact that he spent the time to write that down and to speak that truth on behalf of us living 200 years later, who are still living that same truth. And that we know that the people 200 years from now are going to be living that same truth. There's something elevating in that, that we're all connected in this rather horrible truth. So that's one thing. And and then the other, I would say from Nora McInerney, who writes a lot about grief and gave this amazing TED talk, she lost her husband, at, right, her husband at a very early age. And she talks about the distinction between moving on and moving forward. And she's saying, you know, the culture is telling us like, get over it, move on, be done. And she's saying, you can't actually do that. The, the person you've loved is going to be with you all your life. But what you, what you can do is move forward with them still and always as part of you. And so she remarried and she still loves her husband who she lost. And both those things are true at the same time.
1: So glad that you brought that into it because it's such an important thing for people to sort of, you know, understand it's, there are things you get told, oh, you know, you'll move on or let it go. And what you're trying to say is, no, you live with it and you move forward and you turn it into something else and something new.
2: Yeah, that's right. And and I mean I do I, I do think there is some use also to the precept and the idea of let it go. You know, there there are aspects of our grief that we can let go for sure. Um, we're we're much more resilient than we think we are, most of us. But then there's also a, a part that never lets go. And yet we can move forward with it.
1: I better move to audience questions. I have many more of my own, but Shannon says, do you have any advice on how best to maximize the moments where you feel acutely, melancholy and generate those feelings towards something meaningful?
2: Yeah. I mean, I I think you'll know when you're in them, you know, sometimes like for me with my listening to music, it's enough simply to be in the moment and fully inhabit it because those moments can lead you to a kind of level of transcendence, like trend you know, coming outside your own self and feeling connected to a greater sense of all um, that is so valuable in and of itself. So simply to inhabit the moment, but then also what we do at those moments when we're at our best is we transform them into something beautiful. And for some people, as I say, that's a creative act. which doesn't have to be like a grand, you know, creation of a painting that hangs on a gallery wall, it it can be a very small creative act or modest one. And then also those moments tend to steer us in the direction of meaning one way or another, you know? So like in the wake of this pandemic, um, we've seen an increase in the applications to medical school and nursing school. Um, After 9-11 in the U S we saw an increase in applications to uh, become a firefighter or a teacher Um, So there's something in the human soul that when we engage with melancholy or strain or whatever, we turn in the direction of meaning. So I would say find your meaning.
0: Hello, it's Vass here, recommending you a new book from our friends at Firm Press. This May, the author of The Argonauts and other genre-defying, unclassifiable modern classics, Maggie Nelson, is back with a new collection of essays. It's called Like Love. The collection celebrates art, artists, and thinkers, including Prince, Bjork, Sarah Lucas, and Judith Butler. Like Love is available to pre order now in hardback, ebook, and audio.
1: Cheryl says, Thank you for this work. Uh, how do we find that balance in allowing the full spectrum of human experience? What can we do in a positive psychology, practical way between embracing loss, longing, and sorrow and joy, gratitude, and delight? <laughs> Not a small question.
2: <laughs> yeah, um, you know the the act and the practice that I believe incorporates both sides of 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 uh, of joy and sorrow is the practice of engaging with beauty. You know, really proactively engaging with beauty uh, everywhere we can, because we tend, if we're being honest, we tend to sleepwalk through it. You know, you. You go outside from your house to your car there's a few trees you don't really stop to notice them but those those trees are actually miracles so like to really remind yourself of it um, and and to look for daily practices where you can engage with it and hopefully to do it with other people too and I'll tell you what, while, while I was writing this book, I started this practice where I started following all these um, accounts on Twitter of art accounts and so my like my feed turned into this feed full of art. And then I started every day sharing a work of art on my social channels and taking the time to pair it with a favorite quote or idea or whatever. And, and sometimes it took a really long time. It would take like an hour to put all that together, but it was an incredibly grounding way to start a day or a work day. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say, see what happens if you do something like that.
1: Um, yes, you, you, because I mean, people can follow and see on on social media that you know you're you're putting up of those, of those various bits and pieces. Can I actually, when I mention social media, I, I want it's quite hard to use that to positive um, effect, given the sort of bittersweet tendencies. I suppose how does it feed into it? Because it does feed very much into that culture of false perfection, false positivity. You know a full look on the world, so I suppose you know, really interesting to hear from you how you can encourage it to do the opposite.
2: Yeah, I mean, I the algorithms are going to do what the algorithms do to us, and I think it we still have the ability to resist the algorithms, you know, and to use social media in the way that we think is best. So, you know, there's the algorithms that direct us towards outrage and anger, and there's the algorithms you're talking about that direct us towards wanting to put up the most, you know, flattering, seemingly perfect versions of our lives and ourselves, but we can choose to use social media in just the way poets have used poems to express truth and musicians have used music and, you know, on down the centuries. Um, I, I I think of self, I think of uh, of social media as a, a means to self-expression and a means to connect with like-minded souls and spirits. That's how I think of it. So I think it's up to us.
1: Because actually sadness and sorrow, um, again, you know, s- sort of something that you, you, society perceives as negative emotions that we should avoid, they are, you find, in your research and the scientists and the experts you talk to, you know, we should embrace them much more in society, sorrow, and um, not least because it—it it is something that connects people.
2: It absolutely connects people. There's all this research on it that I talk about, and just one example is... Um, the vagus nerve, which is the biggest bundle of nerves that we have in our bodies, it's incredibly fundamental the, the vagus nerve controls our breathing and our digestion. So like a really important part of our physical selves. And also when we see somebody in distress or expressing distress, our vagus nerve activates you know, with a kind of desire to, to sympathize. Like the, word, the word compassion means to suffer with someone. Um, so our vagus nerve is telling us, it's directing us viscerally to do that. So, especially during these divisive times that we're in right now, we can be using this expression of sorrow, not all the time, not exclusively, just some of the time, um, we can be using it as a bridge between people.
1: And there's another question for you. you um, Sophie says, you talked about the correlation between a propension to bittersweetness and wisdom. Is there a similar link with empathy or emotional intelligence, which I'm glad she, she asked.
2: Oh, you know, that's really interesting. I'm guessing the empathy link is there. And I have to go back and ask Scott Barry Kaufman and David Yadin whether they looked at those two metrics. I will tell you, this isn't your question, but the interesting thing was we did look at whether there was a correlation with introversion. And we actually did not find one. Like the, the correlation was specifically with high sensitivity. And about 80% of high sensitive highly sensitive people are introverts, but not all of them. Um, So that was a kind of interesting twist.
1: There is a correlation that you talk about through the book between people with uh, high levels of empathy and a tendency to bittersweetness or to see the bittersweet.
2: Yeah, especially um, when researchers have looked at sad music, they've found that um, people who enjoy sad and bittersweet music tend to be high in empathy. So in that place, we do see that connection very much.
1: I can sneak in this question, I think, very quickly. Can you speak to the ways in which other people may accept, reject or react to individuals moving towards embracing such bittersweet qualities? I, I suppose um, that's Natalie's question. And I think, Natalie, you know, I don't want to uh, assume what you mean, but I think perhaps, you know, that's to say are people sort of perhaps dismissive of, of you know people uh, embracing those qualities?
2: I think there is a dismissiveness, which is why... I wanted to write this book in the first place. And another another similarity between this book and Quiet, which I had not anticipated going in, I can tell you that the reader letters that are pouring in from people who have read Bittersweet are so similar to the ones that I got in response to Quiet. And the letters kind of sound like, oh, this is a part of myself that I've always known and never wanted to speak out loud, you know, and now I have permission to say it or I, you know, I feel seen, I feel understood kind of a sense that this was never socially acceptable to talk about. And it's a relief to see themselves on the page. So that's been really interesting.
1: I have no trouble believing that that's the case. Absolutely none whatsoever. Yes, one minute, why not? Um, I love your suggestion of using sorrow to connect. Um, Cheryl says, are there other ways we can cultivate and celebrate the bittersweet to bolster connection, curiosity and compassion? What a great question to um, sneak in there.
2: Yeah, well, I'll give you one one final idea on this. So I write about this in the book. There's this amazing, amazing video put out by the Cleveland clinic here in the hospital here in the US. It was designed this video to teach empathy to the caregivers. And the video ended up going wildly viral because what it basically does is it takes you on a walk through the hospital corridors and you're passing all these random people, except instead of just passing them by with video camera, there are like little captions underneath each person telling you what they're experiencing at the moment. And sometimes they're experiencing something amazing, like um, ab- about to become a father for the first time. But then there are some of these captions, like there's one underneath a little girl, and it says, "Going to say goodbye to her father for the last time." And you can't watch this video without tearing up and without having this like visceral heart-opening sensation. And after I watched it, I started asking myself, you know, what if you just imagined what the captions are underneath random people who you're passing in the street? And I do this sometimes as a kind of exercise, you know, like at the grocery store. And I start wondering, well, what is the caption of of the person who's ringing up my groceries? And it really changes the nature of the experience. And I'm so much less likely to kind of socially um, sleepwalk through the experience once I start wondering what those captions are.
1: Susan, sadly, um, we've come to the end now of the hour. There's so much more we could talk about because it's obviously a a sort of eternally interesting and endless subject, isn't it? With so many areas to explore. But thank you so much to everyone who um, signed in. Um, And Susan, thank you very much indeed for joining
2: us. Thank you so, so much, Hannah. You're a brilliant interviewer, and I really appreciate you and everyone who's come out today. Thank you. This
0: episode of the How To Academy podcast starred Susan Kane and was presented by Hannah McInnes. We co produced the original livestream event with the brilliant team at Penguin Live, and the show is made by me and Dana Outcult. If you enjoyed this episode, stay tuned. Next week, we're hosting creativity queen Julia Cameron and Adrian Meschler of Yoga With fame. But until then, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.